Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host Zoe Blasky. This week is with Alistair Gray. Alistair is a transformational coach who infuses neuroscience, intuition, psychology, mindfulness and meditation into his coaching. He's the founder of Mindful Talent and the co-founder of the Mindful Talent Coaching Academy, which delivers coach training, leadership training, and workshops to some of the best brands in the world. He is also dad to Rumi, who is five. And this is a special episode for me because Alistair is also my coach. So I did the advanced transformational coach training with Mindful Talent, which was an incredible experience. And I still work with Alistair today as part of his mastermind group. I find Alistair incredibly inspiring. He realised a few years ago that his life was out of alignment. He looked very successful on the outside, very stressed, very busy, very successful looking, but he realised he felt totally lost on the inside. He felt disconnected, stressed, and I'm sure many of us know what this feels like. I know I do. And interestingly, as it is for so many people, it's his body that first started showing those telltale signs. He tells the story in the episode. So if you've ever felt like that, that your life looks good on paper, but you just don't feel happy, don't feel that joy, that connection, this episode is going to be incredibly powerful for you. And since then, Alistair has been on a path of helping others realise their full potential, including me. It was a really beautiful episode. I hope you enjoy it. I challenge you not to cry at the gift he would give to all mothers. It's a beautiful answer. And before we get into the episode, I'm really excited to tell you that I still have just a few spaces left on my first ever group coaching experience. We start on the 23rd of June. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, like you want some safe space held for yourself to see the wood from the trees, then this month-long experience is going to be incredibly powerful. I'm going to hold space for a beautiful group of mothers to together reflect on this past year. Look at what you might need to change in your life to feel like you again. So we're going to cover my favorite things that we talk about a lot on the podcast. We're going to do a session on boundaries, which is something that I get asked about most days on Instagram. How do I know how to set them? What happens if someone doesn't agree with the boundaries. So we're going to do a whole session on boundaries. Let me take you through my method for doing that. We're going to talk about values. So you can work out your unique values and where you might be out of alignment in your life. And we're going to talk about energy management. There's a really powerful session I'm going to run on where you're leaking your energy. And so often I see with mothers exhaustion. Yes, of course, it's to do with lack of sleep, but it's also to do with so much more than that. So I'm going to run a session on that as well. 
We're going to have a WhatsApp group. So we'll be in contact with each other most days throughout the month. And I'll be in there sharing ideas, voice notes, articles, resources, extra coaching activities. So it's going to be a really immersive experience. And because it's the first one, I have decided to do an incredible discount off what will be the price of the next round, which we'll do in September in return for your feedback. So if you do join the group, I want to know how it was for you so that I can continually improve it. So it's got a massive discount on it. Head to motherkind.co group program or swipe up on my Instagram stories or click the link in the bio on my Instagram. Lots of ways you could find it to join. It will sell out. So if you are interested, please do take a look. Here is the episode with Alistair. Welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to be chatting. Well, thank you for having me. I was saying to Ilaria, my wife, this morning that I feel really honoured and privileged to be coming on to your podcast, Zoe. You know, I'm a huge fan of it and the work that you're doing, I think, is truly amazing. So I feel like the thanks should be coming from me. I'm really grateful to be here today. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to what's going on for because we know each other pretty well. I work with you in a coaching capacity and you coach me. So I think we can be quite honest and vulnerable given that we've already got this kind of friendship and relationship. So I'm excited about that. And you are in Costa Rica. Tell us about the journey from moving from, were you in Berkshire a couple of months ago (laughs) to Costa Rica with a four-year-old? Tell us about that. How did that come to pass and what's it been like? Maybe I'll go back a little bit to kind of my history around travel. You know, I think for most of my kind of adult life and even from a very young age, I was always interested in travel. You know, I grew up in a working class family and we never had a lot of money. But what we did do every year was we went on holiday. And I think, you know, that whet my appetite for just experiencing different places and countries. And so that's never left me from a really young age. You know, when Alari and I got together and, you know, we found out that we were pregnant with Rumi, our daughter, we had a conversation that kind of sticks in my mind where we said, you know, because we are having a child, does it have to change the passions that we have? Does it have to change the way that we look at life? And we both kind of agreed in that moment that, you know, regardless of whatever challenges it would be to travel, we wanted to travel as a family. So we kind of planted that seed before Rumi even came into the world. And prior to this trip a few years ago, we'd actually traveled over to Bali for three months and we ended up staying nine months. And so we'd had that experience of a kind of tropical lifestyle. We always had further intentions to travel again. And actually we were in the process for our US visa. But obviously with everything happening last year with COVID and lockdowns, that kind of was put on ice. And then in October last year, you know, Alaria says, why don't we just go somewhere else then? If America's not happening, why don't we go and travel to somewhere that we'd looked at before? And we talked about Costa Rica before Bali years and years ago. And then Alaria just said, why don't we go to Costa Rica? And it was one of those moments, you know, where you just have that knowing, I would call it, like this surge of excitement coming through us. And we both looked at each other and thought, let's do it. And so within the space of two months, <laughs> we had packed up everything, you know, our car uh, lease agreement just so happened to be up in January. And we thought, well, what a better time to do it. So we let go of our property. We gave up all our possessions. We gave the car back and we made a really, really quick decision to come out here. And thankfully, everything just seemed to fall into place. What I find so inspiring and interesting is that it's so easy to think that 
our security and our children's security comes from our material possessions, right? The things that are around us and keeping things the same. And what I really see in you and Alaria and Rumi in the way that you live is that that security and that safety comes from within you and within your unit. I think that's such a different way to think about life. Where did you start to think that way? Because you said you came from this kind of working class background. I'm guessing there wasn't lots of freedom traveling. You probably hadn't heard of freedom entrepreneurialism. Where did this idea first start to get planted in you that safety and security was from within, not from outside? It's a beautiful question because there's a few things that probably play into this answer. And first of all, what we realized by traveling with Rumi when she was young was that her sense of safety and security really just depended on our unit. Like you said, you know, how balanced Alari and I were, how communicative we were with Rumi, how safe she felt, how safe we felt. So prior to traveling, you know, one of the big differences as a family to travel is being really prepared. Now, if you speak to Alari, that's not my kind of speciality. I kind of go with things, right? But where Alaria and I really balance each other out is Alaria prepares so well, like for everything that we do. And so she did so much research and then got me involved with the research around how do we travel? How do we make it easier on ourselves? There are amazing gadgets and gizmos and things that you can take with you that makes that transition easier, which allows you as the parents to feel more settled and calm and balanced, which of course rubs off on Rumi. So, you know, I think that, as we kind of prepared to travel with Rumi from a young age, we realized the need for her to feel secure was really based on the energy that we were emitting, if you like. You know, the second point to the answer is prior to Rumi coming into the world, you know, Zoe, you know, both Alari and I went through a really deep healing journey, both individually and then collectively. And a lot of the work that we did prior to Rumi coming into the world was shadow work, really going into our own fears, our own traumas and processing a lot of those things that ultimately enabled us to feel a greater sense of security from within. And I think that was really the big transition for me personally. And I believe, you know, Alaria would say the same, that we began realizing, you know, because of events that happen in our life, that actually all of that safety and security comes from within. And really our approach to life was kind of reverse engineered. Like you said, we went from looking at the material things as safety and security to instead looking at the unprocessed emotions, the trauma, the shadows that we had within us. And really that just made us feel more comfortable, more secure, more whole. Our relationship is a conscious one, which isn't always easy because you talk through (laughs) the challenges and the obstacles and what you're both feeling and experiencing. But I really believe that that's where my sense of security started coming from was going through a deep healing journey. How did you do that healing? You know, it was multi-layered. It began probably 11 years ago now. Around 2010, I began meditating. And that meditation was really to overcome chronic stress. I was working in London. I've always been a very optimistic person. But equally, at the other side of that optimism was a real suffering and pain inside I now understand that a lot of that was based on childhood stuff and trauma and things that I'd experienced through life, but it was manifesting as anger, frustration, working hard, playing harder. 
And at that point in London, which I think many people experience in London, it was like full on, right? Working really hard, partying really hard, you know, taking a lot of recreational drugs and alcohol. And my body just started saying, what are you doing? You know, I ended up in hospital with pneumonia and it was a serious case of pneumonia. I was then readmitted because it reoccurred, you know, within a week of me leaving the hospital. And then I began having things showing up in my body that were like, not like blisters, but like really sores on my skin and things. And it was a point in hospital, I'd been in hospital three times, once with pneumonia and twice with these experiences of a breakout on my skin. And I remember just thinking to myself, my body's shouting at me, you know, I need to change something and my lifestyle needs to change. That's what happened. Meditation was the first way into that. My girlfriend at the time said, Ali, you're changing. Your head is not here. We can't even have a conversation. You should try meditation. So that kind of took me on the path and I resisted it for so long because I thought, what is meditation? It's not for me. It's something that I thought it was religious. So I resisted it for so long because at the time I would describe myself as an atheist. And the way that she got me to do it was she said, listen, there's a guy called Deepak Chopra who does a 21 day challenge. (laughs) And I was like the alpha male, right? The masculine energy was like, the challenge I'm gonna jump into that challenge so it was kind of like a Trojan horse but I began meditating and I was listening to Deepak Chopra with his beautiful beautiful voice and his calm and energy and I remember laughing out loud at some of the things he was saying you know talking about cosmic consciousness and the field of pure potentiality and I'm thinking what is this guy even talking about but it was working right it was making me feel calmer it was making me feel more at ease So that was my first journey into a more holistic way of living. But the real catalyst that took me into that healing journey was participating in a plant medicine ceremony. And it was extremely deep and profound. It felt like I probably went through about 10 years of therapy in one evening. And that really started the process of integration and beginning to acknowledge you know some of these things that maybe had been buried in my subconscious you know after that experience I continued on that path I seeked out working with coaches and you know a particular individual came into my life an amazing human called Laura Pringle and she was my healer my intuitive healer that really just helped me understand everything that I'd experienced that was kind of the the real big turning point. When did you decide to make this your life you know with what you do now and this is kind of you live and breathe this every day how did you make that leap because I know so many people I'm one of them had similar kind of experience and but I was doing this parallel life where I would go you know into the city in the week in a suit (laughs) and then at the weekends I'd go on a meditation retreat it took me a long time a long time to feel confident enough to make that leap so what did that look like for you you were in recruitment right Yeah, exactly. I'm laughing. It's kind of like the secret fight club, right? When you first start the journey. It's like like I remember like trying to hide the power of now, like on the tube, (laughs) behind like some sort of corporate book, probably like the economist or something, like trying to hide (laughs) what I was up to. Yeah, well, it was quite a similar experience, apart from that after the plant medicine ceremony, I kind of felt impossible to hide anything because it was so profound that I was in recruitment at the time and I was part of a very successful startup company. I was a director of the company. I ran it with my best mate, right, growing up. And 
you know, when I returned to the office, you know, after that experience, I knew, I knew in my heart and my soul that I was going to have to leave. And to give you an example, like about a week before that experience, I was planning to move to the States with this company and open up our first US office. And so it was that big a shift and trying to articulate my experience to anyone, even myself, was impossible. So I kind of found myself fumbling into this world of trying to explain what I'd experienced, but also trying to make sense of, wow, I don't think this is a path I'm meant to be walking. And I don't even know where I'm meant to be walking. But the one thing that I knew, the one thing that I knew, which still I know within myself till this day is that I was meant to help people. And I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know how it would unfold, but that is what I knew. That was the only thing that I felt I knew at the time, that I wanted to help people. And it took me around seven months or eight months to finally leave the company. So some people may think that's a quick transition. For me, it felt very challenging. You know, I was kind of felt like I was going through a breakup with my best mate running a company. It was a weird experience. We are like brothers. And it was really, really difficult. And then on the same token, I met Alaria two months after the plant medicine ceremony. And we met and were in this world of total love and pure awareness and going through this experience together. So it was such a transitionary period. And as I went through that, the support of, I mentioned Laura Pringle and other people, including practices like Kundalini yoga, meditation, breath work, all of that was kind of helping me to make sense of it. And because I never knew where to start, I began dedicating my time to volunteering. So I began working with a charity in Scotland that worked with disadvantaged young people and a sense of fulfillment I got from that. You know, I met with a, a young 16-year-old boy who was going through real challenges in life and I would meet with him every week and that was lighting my soul up. Like I was like, wow, you know, like everything I'm doing in my week, that's the one thing that was making me feel so alive. So I just kept on what I would describe as following the breadcrumbs. I was like, where's this taking me? And just try and trust this as much as possible. And of course, my ego was like, you've got to know where you're going. And, you know, everyone around me was like, you've got to know where you're going. But I didn't know where I was going. I just knew there was something kind of pulling me or guiding me forward. It's so powerful, this, because I speak to people kind of almost daily, as I'm sure you do, who know they're not doing what they want to be doing. But that ego, like you just described it, is so loud, right? You have to know the answer. What does it look like? What are you going to do? You have to have a plan before you quit. These are all things that I'm sure you hear loads from your clients as well. And I'm wondering, what would you say to those people, given your experience sat here now, you know, fully on this path, in your purpose, in alignment? What would you say to those people who are just right at the start of that with their ego voice maybe too loud for them to hear that knowing? Well, it's such a great question because there's probably multiple things that helped me at the time. I think you hear the words trust a lot, right, in the world that we're in and surrender. And those were probably quite foreign words to me at the time. They probably wouldn't have made a huge amount of sense. And so for me, it was acknowledging the fear that had helped. You know, I think that by me acknowledging it opened me up to ask for help. And that was one of the lessons that I got from the plant medicine was that, you know, I was made so aware that I'd never asked for help in life, all my life. I never asked anyone for help, really, right? You know, I was very independent from a young age. My parents broke up when I was around 16. I was 
ultimately looking after myself from that age onwards. And that independence had helped me get so far in life, but suddenly it was becoming a hindrance. And so in this moment, when I felt the most vulnerable that I've ever felt in my entire life, I had to ask for help. And that was a really big obstacle for me to overcome. You know, it was a really big challenge for me to accept that actually I couldn't do this alone. So that was one of the things, you know, and what's really interesting, so you and I know how this works, but the synchronicity of how Laura Pringle came into my life was the morning of my plant medicine ceremony. I was given Laura's number just by chance and based on no relationship between that ceremony and her, I was just given her number and a friend said, oh, you should reach out to this person. And that was in my mind as soon as I came out of the experience, I thought, you know, I've been told to ask for help. I've been given this number the same day that I'm going to the ceremony. I need to listen to that. So asking for help is one. And something that really helps me is reminding myself that everything will always be okay. Even the hardships that we go through and the obstacles that we face, I repeat that mantra to myself a lot. This too shall pass. You know, everything is going to be okay. And that has helped me probably put more meaning into the word trust and trust the process because I remind myself that I've been through a lot of hardships and challenges throughout life and I've always been able to overcome them. So reminding myself of that belief and asking for help and surrounding myself with good people was probably some of the most important pieces as I moved through that transition. It's so easy to look at someone like you and you know what you're doing now and you're traveling the world with Rumi and Nilaria and doing this thing you love and and yet there's been huge sacrifices along the way. And I think that's something that if I'm honest, I'm kind of scared of sometimes. And I think so many people are scared of that. You know, at times you didn't have anywhere to live, did you? With a six-week-old yeah. baby. Yeah. How did you navigate that? How did you keep that faith and that trust? When I'm guessing people around you thought that you had gone mad. <laughs> <laughs> Literally mad. I mean, many family members, I think, thought I was losing the plot. I actually thought I was as well at points. You know, I had to really check in at points. And yeah, we went through some real challenges. Like you said, Rumi came into the world. We ran out of money in the new business and it wasn't working. And, you know, the decision came that we had to move out the home that we were in. We had nowhere to go. And I mentioned, you know, Laura. Laura ended up putting us up, right, in a double bedroom in a shared flat in, in Edinburgh. And I remember, you know, Alaria saying these words to me that, I think is what got us through those moments. And she said, Ali, regardless of what we have or regardless of what other people think, as long as we have love, we can get through everything and anything. And those words, even as I say it, Zoe, I can feel the emotion because when she said that to me, I was crying at the time. I was feeling a failure. I was feeling lost. I was feeling unsupported. I was feeling all of these things, even though I had these amazing people in my life. And Alaria just reminded me of that in that moment. And it was so powerful and so beautiful. And it links back to how we started this conversation. Suddenly I realized that as long as we had love as a unit, we could navigate through anything. We could make it through the challenges. And Alaria was like this rock in that moment. And I think it just gave me the confidence and the ability to say, you're right. And her unwavering belief in me throughout this whole journey has just been remarkable you know and Alaria's you know obviously in the business now and we work together that was a real big turning point because it was the realization 
that as long as we have got that, as long as we've got the connection, as long as we can keep on speaking, as long as we can keep showing love to one another unconditionally, then we can get through anything. I'm just in awe of her because I think, you know, if I had a newborn and I was like basically, you know, homeless and having to share, I think that's such a, an amazing perspective to take on what life is really about. What is life really about for you? There's probably what I would call an inner purpose and an outer purpose is how I would describe it. I think, you know, speaking in language that probably resonates with everyone, if you asked everyone what they really wanted in life, they'd likely say happy, fulfilled, joyful, you know, the most important things. And I think in its most basic form, truly that's what I desire, you know, to experience present moment awareness, to experience that joy, to experience love, you know, as I just described it. When it comes to this kind of purpose that I'm being driven by, that fuel to help other people is still what drives me. You know, if you ask Alaria behind the scenes, I'm always thinking and reading and researching and meditating and considering how can we give more? How can we help? How can we be of service to other people? And that stayed with me. And that's constantly evolving with my own interests. So that's what feels like my outer purpose is how can I help people live a more fulfilled life and be of service where individuals feel inspired to connect to themselves on a deeper level and to live a life that feels more fulfilling. And, you know, as I've evolved in my own path, the inner purpose remains that happiness, but there is a very spiritual element to my own life. And if that word doesn't resonate with many people, really what I mean is that I went just on a deeper journey of self-inquiry, trying to experience what I would call the essence of who we are in as many moments as we can. So on a practical level, what that looks like is how can I be as present with my family as possible? How can I be as immersed and engaged in ever activities I'm involved with, whether that is work, whether it's family, whether it's play, and playfulness and fun is just something that's really important to me. You know, I like goofing around. Like I'm often working with clients in quite tense and serious situations. And I just think playfulness and fun brings so much to even those experiences. So that's really what I feel the purpose is in life is to connect with this higher self, if we want to call it that, the self that is the best version of you. But through the experience of uncovering that, accepting ourselves, loving ourselves, being kind to ourselves, being compassionate, which for many years never came easy to me. And then, like I said, using that inner work to then help others do the same in their own lives and hopefully make an impact. You know, if I can create an impact and leave an impact on someone's life, then it's a life well lived. Well, you've definitely had an impact on me. You know, I did your coach training and now I'm, you know, part of your small mastermind. and. Yeah, you have this incredible ability to be present with people. It's so inspiring. You also have this incredible vantage point, I think, because you've trained thousands of coaches, I'm guessing, at this point. So you've seen people on the cusp, I guess, of transforming their lives from probably lost to feeling more found. And as you described, you know, living more in alignment with who they are and really what they want to do. I'm just so fascinated with that insight that you have. Are there a common themes that you see on people going through that transformation? And what are they? And how could people listening apply them to their own lives? I mean, the vantage point that I have 
it feels like a great privilege, right? I've shared that with you before. To be on, on a journey with either another human being or a group of people as they go through that experience of transformation or self-realization is really, really special. When we take people through our academy, the graduation calls, I don't know if you remember it, but there's always a ton of emotion, right? People have made connections, which they never thought they would. People have had insights about their life and people have made decisions. You know, they've taken inspired action to change. And I think having went through my own transition, you know, I've got just a great depth of compassion and empathy for people as you go through that, because I know it's not easy. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, wow, these individuals or even my one-to-one clients are at that point where they are leaning into this place of discomfort. They're ultimately having conversations that typically they've not been used to having. So that is such an honor and a privilege to watch people go through that. And one of the commonalities that certainly I see in the work that I do is that a lot of people come maybe with an idea or a preconception of what they would like to change or how they would like to transform. And some don't. Some come at a place where they feel, in the words you used, a little bit lost or unsure. But what is always surprising is that there's always something under the surface, you know, a deeper realization, a deeper insight, a deeper vulnerability that really opens up their inner world to just something more beautiful than they could have ever imagined. And I experienced that with the corporate clients I work with. You know, I call myself an executive coach. And really, you know, I'm very seldom talking about the business. I am in some cases, but a lot of the time it's about the human being and witnessing vulnerability come to the surface and holding that safe space, that psychologically safe space where people can begin expressing. That's the part that still lights me up, you know, because I think it's those deeper realizations beyond the surface that hold the true keys to transformation. And the key to an individual just realizing more of themselves and feeling more confident to express and feeling okay to not be okay and to be vulnerable with that. I love that you use that word space. There's also a tension, isn't there? I think I really experienced this, you know, when I first had Jesse, I knew that space is what gives me the ability to have those breakthroughs and those insights, either space held for myself in meditation or journaling or being with someone who can hold that space for me. And I was craving it so much and I couldn't get it because I was also craving and knew that I had to form this relationship, you know, one of the most important relationships in my life. And I hear this tension from mothers and fathers all the time. I get that I need space and I'm, you know, I'm not on the path that I want to be. And, you know, I'm a parent now. And I guess it's even more important to model the kind of life that we want to live as a family. And I can't get that space with clients that have those challenges. How do you help them? And what's that experience in your life, particularly at the start when Rumi was younger? Yeah. What a fantastic question, Zoe. I think this is an experience that everyone has, especially parents, where, you know, we've been talking about it recently in the group that we're in around the guilt that we feel and the shame. And and also, you know, many of us, certainly this is the case for me, I overcompensated in my parent in, in many ways because, you know, you try and be the perfect parent. You know, you're trying to hold on to this ideology of what the perfect parent looks like. And, you know, and then when you don't meet those high standards that you've set yourself, you feel that guilt and that shame. And so I, I remember when Alari and I, probably about kind of six months into our parenthood journey, I really felt the need for space. And 
I ended up deciding that I would go to do a silent retreat. And that was so challenging. Like we had to talk about it as a couple and naturally it felt like, is this the right thing to do? And, you know, how is this going to affect Hilaria? How is it going to affect Rumi? How am I going to feel? And that experience itself was challenging to even just reach the decision. And then the experience of going away to that retreat was uncomfortable. Is the honest truth, right? It was like playing in my mind, is it the right thing to do all the way? And then as I got to that experience and I spent two days there at a beautiful centre called the Sammy Ling up in Scotland, within about a day to a day and a half, the mind had settled and I felt refreshed and renewed and had these insights about actually parenthood and relationships and business and all of these things. And so the biggest thing for me as I went through that experience again was being able to communicate with Alaria and vice versa. Alaria's also went away to have space and time for herself at different points. And the thing that allowed us to do that was the communication and also acknowledging some of those more sticky feelings that were present. Talking about the shame, the guilt, the uncertainty, the doubt. I'm not suggesting that a two-day silent retreat is what everyone has to do. Sometimes it's 10 minutes. Sometimes it's an evening to yourself. Sometimes it's being able to go away on a, a weekend and, you know, again, asking for help from other people. So I think space and time is really important, but I also think it's one of the most difficult things for people to give themselves permission to do. And I do see this coming up a lot with clients. And I think that as they begin to voice it in sessions with me, they begin to feel more comfortable in expressing that. And then ultimately, usually what happens is it gives them that confidence to talk about that with the people that are closest to them, whether it's their partner or their loved ones or their family members. So I think, you know, coaching and having space with someone else often enables people to develop that emotional literacy, you know, to put words to how they're feeling and then take that out and express that to those that are closest to them. It's a difficult balance, right? Being able to give yourself that permission and not feel the accompanying sense of shame and guilt that can often be there. Do you feel guilty when you spend time working or when, you know, maybe you feel like I haven't seen Rumi enough, I'm not connected, particularly in busy periods. Do you do you experience that guilt and what do you do with it? Absolutely. I've experienced it this past week. You know, we're in a busy week with our academy and new courses launching and things like this. And I think what has helped me is that no longer does the guilt eat at me in the way that it did. It shows up and I'm able to acknowledge it. I've also been speaking to Rumi throughout the week. And I made a commitment at the beginning of the week that when I'm with Rumi, I'm going to be as present as I can. So I've still made sure that I've ring-fenced time for playing. So although the time is less, it's real quality time. So, you know, these are some of the things that have helped me is that when the guilt and the shame shows up, using it as a little bit of a signal to say, okay, what do I need to learn from this? What is it that I can do this week that is going to help me reduce that feeling or let it go? And some of those things were speak to remain, communicate about what I'm involved with this week, ring fence time to be as present as I can, and also to notice and bring awareness to whenever those feelings show up and allow them to be, allow them to be there, but don't get entangled in them. Again, it's not always easy, but you mentioned journaling earlier. I journal every night, you know, which I find a great, relief at the end of the evening to think about what are the emotions that I've felt 
today? What are the experiences that I've had? Again, it kind of gets it out of my head and out of my body and allows me to observe it and think about it and reflect on it, you know, in a positive way. So I experience it all the time still. I just think that I've got a very different relationship with it now than what I previously had. And it's through some of those practices that I mentioned, awareness, journaling, communicating, and being aware of still my duties that I want to be fully active and participating in. Yeah, I often say that journaling is my version of like a white wine at the end of the day because I don't drink. So I think it's like that same kind of relief and ease that I'm guessing, you know, that kind of people are seeking maybe with with those more numbing things. Yeah, when I journal, it's so powerful. I'm, I'm still, I've done it a long time now and I'm still amazed at how powerful it is. It's just one of those things. I'm like, this is incredible. I think there was a study can't remember what year it was but they said that if journaling was a drug it's so effective that it would basically be immoral not to prescribe it because it is so effective in how it can help us see things in a different way I mean it's so powerful and it's interesting because I think again years ago I resisted the thought of journaling you know like I was like what is journaling you know like yeah it's a fancy name isn't it I thought about the book, like, was it Adrian Moore when you were growing up that there was like, (laughs) and, you know, I I never really understood it. And like you, you know, I began trying it. I was encouraged to do it. And it gives, I find it a really cathartic experience. I use journaling also for dreaming and writing down ambitions and intentions. But at the end of the evening, I find it just really cathartic. I find it very soothing on my soul and my mind. I really do believe that, and that there's science that backs this, but prior to me even reading the research, I believe that that journal in the evening has allowed me to sleep well as, you know, as I've went through this journey of being a parent, you know, other than those moments where we have to get up and attend to our little ones. But journaling for me allows me to process, allows my brain to, to process everything that's happened in my day. And then ultimately I go to, bed with a more peaceful state of mind so I find that an incredibly powerful experience and the the research that I read says you know if you journal for 15 minutes in the evening and if gratitude makes up a part of that it's been proven to aid your sleep quite significantly I recommend it to everyone are you free writing are you doing set questions get tell us a bit more detail because I think people will be like I want a bit of that well, it's a mixture of both. I've got, I've actually got about three or four different journals. Not that I was preparing, but I've got, you can see I've got a couple here, right? <laughs> and one of them is actually a journal that directs you through questions. There's two pages. One I do in the morning on the left-hand side, asking you a specific series of questions, which change every day. And then you've got a page at the end of the day, which really just says, capture any of your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. What did you experience today? And that's a bit more kind of free flow. Then I'll have another blank journal that I'll carry with me literally everywhere. It's in my bag at all times. And, you know, as I'm going through my day, if I'm finding myself getting caught up in the busyness of the day and the activities and the tasks and the to-do list, and I notice that feeling of maybe anxiety bubbling up or overwhelm, you know, I put the laptop down and I journal for five minutes. You know, I take a breath, sit, journal, realign myself and then go again. So, you know, my journaling is the morning, the evening, and throughout, which may seem a bit extreme, but it's it's just something that really works for me. And when you say realign yourself, realigning to that higher self that we were talking about before, 
Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah, re- realigning to that. I call it like the best version of yourself. I always say it's available to us in every moment. We just lose sight of it throughout our days because we've got so many things to attend to, so many different distractions, so many responsibilities. So we lose sight of it. We forget it. And the truth is, certainly from my own exploration of the self, is that that true self, that very best version of Zoe, of Ali, of anyone is always in there. You know, it's not something that we've lost. It may be buried under a pile of conditioning and beliefs and tasks and activities, but it's always there. So when I say realign, I mean, you know, stopping what I'm doing, taking a few deep breaths, reminding myself of the intention that I had when I started the day, which is something and I do in my morning journal, I write down what is my intention for the day? How would I like to be today? How would I like to show up? How would I like to communicate? These are some of the questions that I ask myself. And so I take a moment just to pause and realign with that. And it works incredibly well sometimes. And other times my mind and my ego resists it. I'm too busy. You've not got time to do this. And again, it's just a work in progress. I think that self-compassion and kindness is really, really needed. If you're a parent, a business owner, an entrepreneur, whoever, you know, we've got so much information and things coming at us in life at the moment that those moments to pause for me are like a a sanctuary. Yeah. And I think it's so counterintuitive because what I see in my own life is the busier I get, the more stressed I am, the less I think I have time to do that when I most need it. It's such a cruel trick because it's like, I most need it. And yet the busyness and the stress and the overwhelm tells me I don't have time to do it. And I know for me, one of those things, when I hear my mind say, you don't have time to stop, that's like a massive red flag that I really need it. I'm almost like my own loving parent in that moment. You know, when, you know, I say to the girls like, mommy, you don't know you're tired, but you're tired. It's like, it's almost like in those moments I'm saying to myself, you can't see you're going off the rails, but you need to take this five minutes, just do it. And I think the hard thing is, stopping isn't it that's the hard thing like you say it's shutting the laptop it's walking away it might be shutting yourself in a cupboard for a few minutes or whatever like I am now I think that's the hard thing isn't it when you get and stuck in that track of busy busy stress and that's the norm in our society well certainly in western yeah. society isn't it it sadly is a norm and um, I love that you use that red flag as almost like a signal to say wait just now, here's a trap that I know so well. Could I ask you, how do you catch yourself in those moments when you do manage to catch yourself? You know, what is it that brings your awareness to that red flag? Is there anything in particular that you find helps you? The flags for me are like compulsively kind of checking all my devices. Then I know I'm like kind of something's, you know, up when I'm like refreshing the emails or I'm just rushing around and just being unproductive, but making myself feel like I'm busy. That's normally when I know, like, I need to take five minutes here. Something's going on that I'm not aware of in that moment, but I'm kind of avoiding. That's normally a really big one for me from a work perspective. And then, yeah, with the girls, it's probably like checking my phone as well. Like, I now keep my phone in a different room because of this behavior. I really noticed it myself, like I'd be with them and I'm checking my Instagram. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm with my kids. And I'm checking my Instagram, like, what is this? And it became like quite a thing where I was doing quite habitually, you know, and that's a kind of avoidance of being present for me, which is still such a practice, is just feeling safety in that 
utter presence and trusting that there's nowhere else to be and there's nowhere else to go and it's safe to just be with them you know so that's another flag if I'm noticing that I'm somewhere but I'm not there then I take a pause and I kind of ask myself what's up it may not be that the insight doesn't come through until later that evening when I'm fully like what was that about but at least it's enough of a breath I don't always catch it of course sometimes I go through the day and it's just god I think god I've not been present really at all but yeah that's one of my core shadows is kind of being there but not being there so grateful for you sharing that because it's just a very similar thing for me and I think that awareness and using almost identifying those behaviors and saying those are the things that when they show up I know that actually I need to take a rain check and that's some of the things that have helped me through my own experiences am I checking my devices it's one of the biggest ones one of the biggest ones that I've talked about with clients am I checking my devices a lot if so what is that showing us you know what is that guiding us to and I think that's the kind of moment where I begin to feel a little bit frantic in my energy and like you said I'm not really being overly productive but I'm just checking things I kind of like right this is a sign take a step back and I think you know I love your honesty and openness the way around it because I think that this is something that many many parents struggle with and not only parents many people in life right we go our device which gives us almost like that instantaneous break from reality because we get lost in the scrolling but really it's taking us further away from accessing that more peaceful calming state which I call the true essence earlier so I think it's, uh, if, you know, if we can use those triggers in life or those signposts, I've found that a really beneficial way to navigate my experience and to hopefully be more present uh, than not. Hmm. What's your intention as a parent, as a father? We talked about presence. What else is when you're, when you're parenting and what is it that you really want to model and demonstrate and what's important to you? The first one is presence. I think back to, I've done a lot of work on my own childhood and and bless my parents, amazing human beings, and I've got a great relationship with them, but they were young, right? They were young parents. Like, you know, I think my parents had me when they were kind of 21 and 22, right? Really, really young parents. Like I said, they were kind of finding their way in the world and, you know, making ends meet. And I think that as I reflected on childhood, you know, my mum had to hold a number of different jobs. My dad would work long shifts, you know, six days a week. And so when I became a parent, I thought the most important thing is being present as much as I can with Rumi. So that is my number one intention as a parent is, can I be present? And then as Rumi's developed, right, and she's now five, I've just seen how she just loves to play. Like she loves imagination. She loves make-believe. Like this is her most favorite thing in the world and as I reflected on my own childhood I realized I love that as well like I love playing I love making up characters and whatever so what I love to do with Rumi as a dad is we play and I make up characters you know I've got this little character which is my fingers called Stompy who's a spider and like like literally we will sit for we sat for 30 minutes this morning with me being Stompy and Eladia laughs because there's some mornings where like for the first two hours of the day, if it's say it's a weekend or it's a time when I'm not working or whatever, but sometimes for the first two hours of the day, I've been like seven different characters, but myself. And I'm like, I think I need to speak as Dan now. <laughs> like I'm like, I've done like, you know, these, I, just all these array of characters that we built up. And then I'm like, 
God, I've actually been in a character for two hours now. So those are the two things that really matter most to me as a parent. I think just being fully present with Rumi and she's very creative and she loves making things and loves doing art. And I think I've used that as an opportunity for me to re-engage with the inner child, right? The things I used to love doing. And then the other thing is just that make-believe and that imagination. And I make myself laugh during those experiences because I'm just letting go of any thought of reality and what's possible. And her belly laugh, I mean, that's just what lights me up as a parent. So those are the two things, play and imagination and being fully present and engaged with the things that she loves, which is creativity and art and expression. Yeah, I'm the same. Jessie creates these little worlds and it's just every day she says what family we want to be. She's like, today we're going to be a school family. So I have to be the teacher. Guy's the headmaster. I'm like, why is he the headmaster? And I'm not the headmaster. But he's always the headmaster. And we have to do the whole day, the whole day in these roles. It's absolutely hilarious. But like you, it's been such a powerful healing thing because it is inner child work. Like I haven't had to go to a retreat or an inner child seminar or, you know, I've done the reading and blah, blah, blah. But actually... I just get to live it with them. It's just incredible. It's such an opportunity for healing that and connecting to that light part of me, that fun part of me. And and it's just all there. It's just all there. Like the moment they wake up, right? It's, I mean, it's full on. But I think you're so right around connecting back with what, you know, we used to love as children and just having the opportunity. It's magic, isn't it? It's totally magic. And again, this is the beauty and the gift that we can have is if we can get present enough just to enjoy that magic and again, give ourselves permission to do it. I think it took me a little while, right, as a dad to to actually let go of the seriousness of being an adult and being the, the person that, you know, disciplines and shows. And instead, I've really just found my way of, of being a big kid again. And it feels just great to do it. It feels really great to be a big kid again. And like you said, you know, I think as much of that experience has been for me as it has been for Rumi. You know, I think it's really a lot of that inner child and that healing and reminding myself, wow, you can have fun and be playful and not take life too seriously. So, you know, that's a gift that Rumi's given me is showing me that and reminding me of that. And yeah, these characters are, I remember my family coming down to London, right? And my my mum and my sister and Elias, my little nephew, comes into our house. And at the time, the characters was a character called Doggy. And another character called, what was the other character? I can't remember the name now. It was about two years ago. And I think my mum and sister thought I was losing the plot. I've got these characters on the stairs making up different voices. But it was a beautiful thing to see them, see me in a really different light, right? That they'd not seen me in for a long time. And they're like, this is amazing. My sister's like, you've got to start a YouTube channel with those characters. I was like, no way. I don't want any pressure. This is just for us. This is our, you know, this is our experience. It's so funny how we do that right is we find something fun and enjoy it and then it's like how do we make a business out of this how do we make this bigger I, I do that all the time and guy my husband says to me just enjoy it like why are you thinking about you know so yeah. it's so conditioned in us isn't it it's so fascinating so I always ask the same question at the end which you will know which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world what would that one gift be and why when Alaria gave birth to Rumi but I feel emotional saying this, she became my superhero in that moment because I'm in so much awe of mothers and what they give to this world and how they bring 
these incredible little humans into the world and what they sacrifice and the changes they go through physically, mentally, emotionally. And so my gift to mums would be a huge thank you and just a huge amount of gratitude and appreciation for being who you are. And I know it's not an easy journey. And, you know, there's not a day goes by that I'm not in awe of my own wife and Rumi's mum, but also other mothers, my sister, my own mum, like, so that's my gift. It's just a real sense of appreciation and gratitude that I have for every single mum out there. And, you know, regardless of however you feel about yourself, know that you're incredible, you know, know that you're whole and complete and doing just an amazing, amazing job. So that's my gift. That's beautiful. And how does someone learn more about the Academy, about the course you're launching? Where can people find you? So Mindful Talent is the company that we run and we've got an academy called the Mindful Talent Coaching Academy. We have two kind of signature courses, the Transformational Coach, which is an accredited coach training program that you obviously came through, Zoe. And we're just launching literally today, as you and I speak, our new course, which is called Insight. And it's an eight-week journey of self-transformation through the lens of neuroscience and mindfulness. So really, you know, merging those worlds of holistic approach with the science. And we're so excited. This has been so many months in the making. It's a beautiful experience. So you can find Mindful Talent on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram as well, Alistair underscore Gray underscore coach. And you can also look at Mindful Talent on the web, uh, which is www.mindfultalent.com co.uk or coach and i would say you know if anyone's thinking of coach training i would really recommend I, my experience was incredible there's so many out there there are so many coach trainings i think it's hard sometimes to cut the wheat from the chaff but i would highly recommend anyone thinking of it to check it out and see if you feel drawn to the mindful talent way which is brilliant so thank you for the service that you do in the world thank you for being you and thank you for your time today I really appreciate it well thank you so much Zoe and like I said I'm really grateful for being here today and for everything that you do so keep on inspiring and I look forward to connecting soon So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.